Warning. Yes. Binge mode contains adult content. Oh, <laughs> Hermione. Hermione. What do you think? Uh, what do you think? Uh, Vic the Dick shouts out while in the throes of ecstasy with Hermione. Well, I don't. I don't even know. If uh, if that's something you ever thought about or you don't want to think about, please uh, check out one of our other fine podcast brands. Like check out the new fantasy football pod on the Ringer NFL show. The new fantasy football pod on the Ringer NFL show with Danny Kelly and, and Danny Heifetz. and Danny Heifetz, the Dannys. Fantasy Danny, football, incredible pun. <laughs> One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know which creature Harry would be unwilling to kiss, please proceed with extreme caution. And now, binge mode. We bow to each other, Harry, said Voldemort, bending a little, but keeping his snake-like face upturned to Harry. Come, the niceties must be observed. Dumbledore would like you to show manners. Bow to death, Harry. The Death Eaters were laughing again. Voldemort's lipless mouth was smiling. Harry did not bow. He was not going to let Voldemort play with him before killing him. He was not going to give him that satisfaction. I said bow, Voldemort said, raising his wand, and Harry felt his spine curve as though a huge, invisible hand were bending him ruthlessly forward, and the Death Eaters laughed harder than ever. (laughs) Very good, said Voldemort softly, and as he raised his wand, the pressure bearing down upon Harry lifted too. And now you face me like a man, straight-backed and proud, the way your father died. And now we duel. Binge Mode Harry Potter. I'm Mally Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Great website. What a great website. <laughs> Joining me today, now that he's finished crushing twigs with his new silver hand, it's Ringer staff writer, <sighs> your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Wow, my lord, it fits like a glove. <laughs> Thank you so much. You know what else fits like a glove? Binge Mode Harry Potter, where That's we're right. exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe, whether you entered the maze first or last. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us five points I'm sorry. for Binge Mode. Yes. Also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore. And join our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans, and which is an excellent place to swap resurrection recipes. We can use any wizard's blood, right? We don't have to use the... I insist on right? the chosen one's blood. I insist. They have an enemy. I want like that a, nice diamond they, sheen on the top all, of my cauldron aren't they potion. All your enemies. Well, that's true. Great point. Yesterday, on binge mode Harry Potter, we explored how secrets of the past shape chapters twenty-seven through thirty of Goblet of Fire. And on today's episode, we're diving into chapters thirty-one through thirty-four of Goblet, and it is going to get emotional. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge, as always. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep <laughs> on details from all seven books and eight films in the wider Potter canon. Wide Odinini. <laughs> Taking the entire series into account from the moment the porky pulls our navel. Mm. So move aside if you're the spare, because it's time to head to the graveyard. Kill the spare. Kill the spare. 
That's a tough. Uh, That's tough what thing I would here. expect a Rita Skeeter reader reader to say. So, uh, oh, very a, on brand first for you. Of all, it's not like there's the tweets are coming at you. They're not. They're. <laughs> it's all in good fun. We all recognize the value of free press. I think part of the problem is there's like not there's like two publications and there's just not enough choice out there. It's like Wizard Weekly. Yeah, which weekly? You which got weekly? The quibbler, you got the Daily Profit. And what is the Quibbler even doing? They're just like the shit is upside down. You can get very, ready for Order of the Phoenix. That's what. <laughs> Mal, stand aside. I will kill these plot points. They are mine. <laughs> so let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Goblet Chapters 31 to 34 by climbing aboard this Scarlet Steam engine to plot the Hogwarts. Ah, choo choo. <laughs> Time for the third task! In the maze, Chrome appears to resort to treachery, but that doesn't stop Harry and Cedric from reaching the cup at essentially the same time. Yeah. They decide to grab it together. Uh-oh, the cup is a port key, though, which transports them to a graveyard in Little Hangleton where Wormtail and the nub of Voldemort await. Cedric is murdered. Harry is bound, and his blood is used in a ritual that returns Voldemort to his body and power. But the twin cores of Voldy and Harry's wand react to each other in an unforeseen way, allowing Harry, against all odds, to escape. On to the end. Jason? Yes. This is old magic. Yeah. Old podcasting magic. I should have remembered it. It's your bad. I was foolish. Yeah, you were. To overlook it. But no matter, I can podcast now! You guys can't see, but I'm touching Jason's cheek with my long spider-like finger. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapters 31 through 34 of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire is Innocence Lost. Chapter 31, The Third Task. As soon as possible, Harry shares almost everything he learned from the pensive and Dumbledore with Ron, Hermione, and Sirius. There's a heaviness among our trio as they debrief, a realization and a resignation that's settling in. Hermione thinks back on Rita's comments, Jason's favorite journalist, Rita. It's it's like one of three maybe journalists. (laughs) About Ludo's hair-curling past and the prejudice that trails Haggard and Madame Maxime, people and ideas that they used to approach with such innocence, an innocence that is melting away with every new truth they learn. The only thing Harry doesn't share, as he promised Dumbledore he wouldn't, is what he learned about Neville's parents. That night, back in his dormitory, Harry looks over at Neville's bed and, quote, imagined how it must feel to have parents still living but unable to recognize you. And feeling that Neville deserved the sympathy Harry so often got about his parents even more than Harry did. There's very little to be gained from measuring and attempting to compare degrees of grief. It is worth thinking about what Harry's thoughts here represent. Not a value judgment on his parents' lives versus Neville's parents' lives or on his life versus Neville's, but a newfound perspective, an internal acknowledgement that there's no one template for torment or its impact. Harry's parents died when he was a baby. He was raised by neglectful bigots. He's faced annual hardship since entering the wizarding world. His daily reality has rarely been able to be defined by childlike wonder. But innocence, just like everything else in life, is not black and white. It's a spectrum. It's a matter of degree. And everything that Harry learns about the carnage Voldemort has caused shifts him further and further down that scale. Quote, 
It was Voldemort, Harry thought, staring up at the canopy of his bed in the darkness. It all came back to Voldemort. He was the one who had torn these families apart. He had ruined all these lives. Ron and Hermione continue to help Harry prep for the third task at the expense of their own studies. Once again, it's worth considering how Voldemort and Bardi have made Harry a much more capable foe. If Harry had never found himself in the Triwizard Tournament, he wouldn't have needed to master so many of these new abilities so quickly, nor to pass them on to his fellows. Uh, This is something we'll talk about as we get more into Order of the Phoenix and Half-Blood Prince, but you don't think about an enemy as someone you're in a relationship with, but that's really what it is. It's a relationship. It's a back and forth, and you learn things from each other. Next school year, Harry will be teaching many of these skills to members of what will become to be known as Dumbledore's army. The flip side, which we feel obligated to concede here, maybe it wouldn't have made a difference as long as he had his trusty old Expelliarmus and Expecto Patronum in the tool belt. Still, Harry shifting from student to teacher stems both from the necessities of the moment at an umbridged plagued Hogwarts and from the realities of, again, being the victim, the focus, the target of Voldemort's wrath. And what's happening now in the tournament is is a pathway to that reality. Just as he did last school year in learning to combat the Dementors, Harry's already shedding his innocence, the innocence of being able to advance through a school year in a childlike fashion. He's grappling with concepts like murder and torture. That's not something... That's not on the curriculum. That's not... That's not on Bardai's curriculum. Right. That's not something 13, 14, 15-year-old kids should have to deal with, but this is something that they all have to deal with. This is not just uh, some kind of remote thing that happens to other people. This has happened to people they love. Knowledge has been survival for him for some time now, and it's as true here as ever. Harry is feeling more confident about the third task than he did the first two. Quote, Moody was right. Harry had managed to find his way past monstrous creatures and enchanted barriers before now. And this time he had some notice, some chance to prepare himself for what lay ahead. In general, Harry has needed to shed far too much innocence and youthful folly too soon. But this is one instance where really no one, not even Sirius, who's been beating the warning drum constantly, has shed enough innocence. Harry's training hard. Yes, but everyone seems to believe that if Harry simply gets through the final task safely, all will be well. Serious, in one of his now daily letters, which is very sweet, quote, he, meaning Voldemort, cannot hope to lay hands on you while you are under Dumbledore's protection. The danger in everyone's mind lies inside the maze. No one can even fathom the maze, indeed the entire tournament, actually being a cover for and a portal to the real thing, to something else. Such is the brilliance of Voldemort's design. The truest evil is the one of which we cannot even conceive. So it is here. So it will be with Voldemort's seven Horcruxes. Quote, this was the final hurdle, Harry thinks. And however well or badly he did, the tournament would at last be over, which would be an enormous relief. Well, (laughs) if only Harry lived in a world innocent enough for that to possibly be so. The morning of the third task brings one more worry. Rita is back on her bullshit. Sure is. This time, She's back with the screed, Harry Potter, Disturbed and Dangerous. Again, good headline. It's I'm clicking on this <laughs> immediately. Great SEO. It's just the article questions not only his fitness for the tournament, but his fitness in, in attending Hogwarts and noting that he regularly collapses at school and complains of pain in his scar. Again, these are facts, guys. I'm just going to put it out. Is that not true? Can we not print that? How would we do it? Would we contact uh, Dumbledore and be like, 
I just wanted to get your, uh, we're going to press in about an hour with a story about Harry Potter and his fitness to attend school. Could, did you want to comment on Harry Potter's uh, numerous fainting spells and, and the pain in his scar? I would, I would fire being... back by asking you about your journalistic ethics and integrity since mm. you are banned from the grounds and yet as an unregistered animagus are sneaking in, spying on the students mm-hmm. and collecting via illicit and nefarious means mm-hmm. information to which you are not entitled. So that's a no, he does not fit. (laughs) Rita notes that she witnessed firsthand his recent, this was a mistake by her. That was dumb. That was stupid, Rita. Sloppy shit. Sloppy shit, Rita. His recent divination exit. Shouldn't have opened that window, Harry. The piece goes on to posit with aid of quotes from medical experts that he could have an addled brain. I mean, he could, maybe from the attack on him as a baby, or or maybe he's just desperately seeking attention. But that's not all. The article also reveals with a handy assist from Draco, the fucking ass Malfoy, who should be in jail again <laughs> with his whole family. They sh- he should have been born in jail. This is a big episode for your all the Malfoys belong in it's jail. It's unbelievable. Stance, yeah. That Harry speaks partial tongue, again, true. Long associated <laughs> with the dark arts, and that everything that happened to Harry's second year in Harry's second year was hushed up. Harry has dealt with a cloud of suspicion before, as when the chamber was opened and when his name popped out of the goblet. He never cared what Rita or Draco thought or when anybody else thinks of him. Yet there's something different about this article, a shift in the scale and the realm of the questions surrounding Harry. This isn't just other students whispering on his back or pushing a badge in his face. This is a public attack right. on the golden boy. So widely loved. I mean, listen, it's, there's only three newspapers you can read, and this is big. Even if it's not souring Harry's mood or worrying him now, it's a loss of innocence in the form of a certain shield of ingrained public perception that's starting to crack and that will crumble utterly when the ministry, the press, and much of the public paints Harry as a liar following Voldemort's return. that's It's an interesting thing to consider because Harry has really kept his fame at arm's length. But at the same time, it's hard not to imagine that on some level he, en- he enjoys some aspect of the notoriety considering it's been very positive up to now. People coming up to him saying, oh, Harry Potter, you know, like being amazed to meet him. And now those interactions might be different because what if Harry Potter's evil? Fainting all the time, pain in the scar, what's that mean? How is Rita doing this? How? Well, earlier in this chapter, our gang observed Malfoy looking like he was using a walkie-talkie. Now, following this article and Hermione's insistence that even with the window open, Harry could not have been overheard atop North Tower, that's where divination is, remember, he says, quote, well, you're the one who's supposed to be researching magical methods of bugging. Bugging. Dun-dun-dun. <laughs> Siren. At last, it clicks for Hermione. Quote, an odd dreamy expression suddenly came over Hermione's face. She starts running her fingers through her hair where the beetle was crawling following the second task. She mimes Malfoy, holding his hand up to his mouth and speaking into it. Quote, no one would be able to see even Moody and she'd have been able to get onto the window ledge, but she's not allowed. She's definitely not allowed. I think we've got her. And then Hermione naturally runs off to the library to confirm her suspicion, which we will learn about at book's end. And it is correct. Rita, an unregistered animagus, has been spying using her beetle form. This is an interesting instance of loss of innocence actually helping our heroes piece something together. Hermione, long and avid rule abider, would never have believed when she first stepped foot at Hogwarts as an 11-year-old that a respectable, and look, I would 
personally quibble with that word choice in Rita's case, but undeniably, she is an established public figure. So that a established member of society like that could skirt magical law in this fashion. Wouldn't have even considered it possible. Now, though, Hermione, Ron, Harry, they've seen heroes and villains alike do just that with something bordering on regularity. Hermione knows what people are capable of, even the marauders, our dear sweet marauders. And I'll channel Jason's voice here and chime in and say, well, three or four. Never <laughs> registered. Of course, a scoundrel like Rita, who shows no respect for the facts or the truth, would be willing to skirt the law as well. Our heroes have been worrying about fucking Voldemort for years now. They've seen and contemplated true evil. They know what horrors await. Rita's tainted methods are absolutely nothing compared to that. And yet, there's something about that moment when you realize that it's not just the quote-unquote bad guys, but also what regular people who you face in everyday life are capable of. That in some ways is as important of a turning point for a young person. Everyone lives in the gray. Right after Hermione runs off, McGonagall summons Harry. The champion's families are gathering before the task. And Harry's like, what? Who? Does, the Dursleys are here? From the book. He didn't, he really didn't want to go into the chamber. He had no family. But Cedric summons him. They're waiting for you. He enters and sees who else? Mrs. Weasley and Billy Boy. Love this. Quote, beaming at him. Harry tells them how nice it is of them for them just to be there for him. So much of Harry's loss of innocence stems, of course, from the loss of his parents. Having to grow up not only absent their love and their presence, but absent any kind of parental presence at all in his life with the Dursleys. The Weasleys and Sirius increasingly have given Harry what he never had. Family roots, unconditional love, but not all interactions in the family chamber are so heartwarming. Amos Diggory has been reading. He's been reading The Daily Prophet. And when he passes Harry, he says, bet you're not feeling quite as full of yourself now. Cedric's caught you up on points, are you? Amos is furious that Rita's article implied Harry was the only Hogwarts champion, which I get, I get it. Tough look for Amos considering what's about to happen. Yes. Still, you'll show him, said, beaten him once before, haven't you? It's a painful and surprising moment for Harry, realizing that that kind of acid and vitriol spread about him can poison the minds of people and even the people who know him, even the minds of the parents of his friends, and will resist the urge to, to dive deeper into what a kind of like uncharitable look this is for Amos, considering that he's about to lose his son. Though Harry's day with Mrs. Weasley and Bill is, is largely lovely. When are we going to spin off on Og? Dear sweet Og, want to know all about Og. <laughs> I need that that Arthur Molly prequel. Man, there are dark harbingers too. Percy, we learn, is brought in for questioning over the letters Mr. Crouch was sending. A real loss of innocence here for Percy, though sadly not one that led him on a better course, although he eventually does come right. With Crouch missing in action and Percy in for questioning, Corn Fudge. <laughs> the new judge. Great guy, Corn Fudge. Love that. Love a Corn Fudge. Not going to not gonna need him today. The worst. It's time at last for the third task. Harry's nervous, but finds that just being able to recall the spells that he's practiced reassures him. McGonagall informs the champions that she, Moody, Hagrid, and Flitwick will be patrolling the outside of the maze, ready to help a champion in need of rescue. Just send red sparks into the air. They'll come get you. Bagman magnifies his voice, reminds the crowd of the standings. Cedric and Harry tied in first place with 85 points. Crumb next with 80 and Floor last with a point total that remains unmentioned. And I would just like to very, very quickly, we got a lot to cover today, so I'll keep this tight. I just want to lament the fact that the only female competitor in the Triwizard Tournament never does well. That actually genuinely really bums me out. Mm. Floor is last into the maze because she's last in points. She's first to fall and doesn't 
show much of anything, even though she's a fun and interesting and emotionally compelling character moving forward, as we will talk about in time. Just a bummer that she doesn't do better in the tournament. I, I really, that bums me out. I know a lot of uh, a lot of readers feel the same way. Yeah. Continuing. She does better in life, though. It's true. Bagman's whistle blows. Considering that one of them dies. <laughs> considering that, it's, it's, considering that Cedric dies and, yeah. Could be worse. Bagman's whistle blows. Harry and Cedric enter, and the surrounding sounds vanish. They light their wands. They reach a fork in the maze and part ways. And after Harry hears two more whistles, he knows, okay, all four champions are inside. It's really on now. Quote, the old feeling that he was being watched was upon him. We will realize later he was quite right. Bard I Moody patrol in the maze, keeping an eye on Harry, removing obstacles from Harry's path as best he can, clearing Harry's way to the cup and Voldemort as best he can. Quote, Harry didn't know why, but the lack of obstacles was unnerving him. Surely he should have met something by now. Well, that's right. Harry thinks that the maze may be luring him into a false sense of security. Even though that's not totally what's at play here, he is smart and observant enough. He has lost enough of his innocence to know that something is off here. Something's up. The first obstacle Harry reaches is a Dementor. Oh, so we're just going to start here then at the toughest uh, enemy foe that Harry has faced yet. Uh, those are no problem now, though. Thinks He thinks of celebrating completing the maze with Ron and Hermione at his side and casts his Patronus. The silver stag goes galloping out. The Dementor stumbles, which is a weird thing for Dementors to do. Usually they just flee from the sight of this. So this must be a bogger, which is even easier. Ridiculous. Boom. Even here with Harry soaring, we get a tender reminder that he's just a boy as the silver from the book. The silver stag faded from sight. Harry wished it could have stayed. He could have used some company. Harry's Patronus represents his father and the protective shield of the loved ones who hold us dear. No matter how much innocence Harry loses, how much is ripped away from him, the one thing he'll most want to restore is the safeguard of family. Alone again, he encounters a strange golden mist. He's unsure how to remove it from his path and he hesitates, but then he hears a scream. He thinks it's Fleur. Quote, he took a deep breath and ran through the enchanted mist. The world turns upside down. And Harry knows his only choices are to send up red sparks and be disqualified from the tournament or take a step into the unknown. He steps and the world writes itself. And ultimately, this moment has no bearing really on the plot, but it's... We wanted to note it because it is underratedly cool and emblematic of what makes Harry Harry. He doesn't need a spell here. He just needs courage for him among the strongest magic of all. Remember what Crouch said the night the champions were chosen. Courage in the face of the unknown is an important quality in a wizard. Very important. So it is here for Harry. So it has always been. And so it always will be. A constant propelling force moving him forward as his innocence melts away. He plows ahead thinking of Fleur's scream, displaying a, an internal competitiveness and savagery that is surprising. He couldn't help but thinking, one champion down. Really tough. That's, wow. For the first time since he'd become, and you know what? He wouldn't be that good if he didn't think that on some level. That's fine. <laughs> you know, it's not like you need to like put that into the world, but that's got to be somewhere this is in there. This, Harry's internal monologue in this chapter is very much in line with the point you regularly yes. make, which is on some level, yeah, on some level, he likes it and he wants it. Like he finds himself thinking, mm, I'm yeah. here now. Maybe I'll actually win. And wouldn't that be great? And that's what he's thinking now for the first time since he'd become the fourth champion, since daydreaming and grinning into his pillow. He's at the at the beginning of all of this. He's allowing himself to think, what if I won? He faces a scroot, which, again, Hagrid catches heat in the papes for <laughs> illegally breeding these, which 
again, facts, but we're going to put them in the Triwizard Task. There's wild. The, it's just the whole, the rules. Wild. It's just the Wild West out here in the Wizarding World. And as he's searching for the right path, he hears a nightmarish scene across the hedge. Cedric yelling and then Crumb screaming, Crucio. Harry burns a hole through the hedge, makes his way to the screaming Cedric. Harry stuns Crumb and he and Cedric agree to send up Red Sparks to make sure Crumb is removed before being eaten by one of these scroots. We later learn that Bardi imperioed Crumb to make him do this. But in this moment, absent this knowledge, think of the horror Harry feels. It is a shocking moment. When you read oh, that, yeah. I was like, oh, I didn't think Crumb had this in him. Yeah. Wow. In addition to admiring Crumb as a Quidditch player, Harry and Crumb had really begun to bond following their recent chat. You know, it's, uh, do you like Hermione? She talk about you all the time. Uh, he knows that Hermione likes Victor, and yet he just saw him use an unforgivable curse on Cedric, who's a good dude. It's a loss of innocence in, in the moment and later with full clarity here as the prospect of Crumb being capable of this sinks in later as the realization that even someone as fierce as Crumb could be used as a pawn, so easily. Now, fiercely desiring to get to the cup, Harry crosses past with a sphinx, and she issues a riddle. And much like Snape's potion riddle in stone, this is a wonderful little great. flex from JKR, who actually has to invent something compelling here. That's what's so... I'm amazed by these little, little details. Because, yeah, the riddle has to work as a riddle. Right. And it has to be fun to read. That's It's hard to make these. You have to want to piece it together with Harry. Yes. Um, Harry, operating in a methodical fashion that would make Hermione proud, solves it. Shocking. It was Candidly. A, truly... <laughs> it is actually truly shocking. Yeah. When you're reading this for the first time, you're like, well, Harry's done. Yeah, Harry's, <laughs> There's no way Harry solves Can this. I get a lifeline? Uh... <laughs> From the books, amazed at his own brilliance, Harry continued onward. <laughs> Asking his wand to point him, he dashes up the designated path and sees the cup. Yes. Gleaming just a football field's length away. But Cedric runs into the path ahead of him and Harry knows he can't catch him. Yee. Just then, Harry spots something massive approaching, but Cedric doesn't see it. Harry, in a fateful moment, calls out to warn him, Cedric, on your left! And the spider runs at Harry, whose stunners have no impact. It lifts him into the air, and as he kicks, a pincer punctures his leg. The pain is excruciating. Cedric tries to stun the, stun the spider, too, but to no avail. It's just too big for, for one of them to take on. Harry turns in his moment of need to the only one who ever really loved him, Expelliarmus, <laughs> using it to dislodge himself from the spider's grasp, and he falls down onto his injured leg. He and Cedric stun simultaneously, and this is powerful enough to knock the spider out. Harry sees the spider's venom in his shaking leg. Cedric is feet from the cup, and Harry tells him, just take it, take it, man. You, you're there, just do it. But Cedric doesn't. Oh, boy, here because we are. Because he's a fucking idiot. Or <laughs> <laughs> a good person? Alternate interpretation yeah, of the both, text. They both were dumb here. Quote, Harry saw the longing expression on his face in its golden light. Cedric tells Harry to take it and notes that Harry saved him twice. And they just are going back and forth here. No, you take it. No, you take it. Harry's getting pissed. That's not how it's supposed to work, Harry said, anger bubbling inside him. After all that, Cedric beat him to the cup just like he beat him to Cho. <laughs> there is something... So human, yeah. so deeply human about this moment for Harry. The idea that even Harry, a hero, a chosen one, feels the bitter sting of coming up short, of feeling inadequate. It does not matter to Harry in this moment that he fought so mm -hmm. hard and did so well. Just matters that at the end, he lost. But Cedric refuses to take the cup. He brings up how Harry told him about the dragons. And when Harry says, listen, we're square. You helped me with the egg. Cedric says, well, I had help with that too. We'll learn, Bardi. They're standing here 
both thirsting for glory, carrying physical and mental and emotional wounds, trading these pleas and excuses. Neither, any the wiser, of the puppeteering that has led them to this moment. Quote, Cedric was serious. He was walking away from the sort of glory Hufflepuff House hadn't had in centuries. Now, the narrative of this book, the way it is written, we are not in Cedric's mind. We are seeing this from Harry's perspective. Still, though, we can infer what is transpiring here for Cedric, what he's playing out. He wanted so badly to bring honor to himself and his house and his family to prove that he could be great. But in this moment, he finds that it doesn't actually feel worth the trade-off, the cost of leaving Harry behind. That is the true glory of being a Hufflepuff, being true, being just, knowing that standing by Harry means more than chasing individual riches would. The agony of this moment of unrivaled growth and clarity and exemplary behavior costing Cedric ultimately everything, literally his life, is too severe and tangled to even comprehend. What a loss of innocence for Harry to look back on this later and realize the cost that goodness sometimes brings. Go on, Cedric said. He looked as though this was costing him every ounce of resolution he had, but his face was set. His arms were folded. He seemed decided. Harry allows himself again to think about what it would be like to win. Imagine it winning. Both of us, Harry says. We'll take it at the same time. It's still a Hogwarts victory. We'll tie for it. And Cedric grabs Harry, helps him limp forward. They hold out their hands and count to three and they each grasp a handle. <laughs> and instantly, Harry feels a jerk behind his navel. It was pulling him onward in a howl of wind and swirling color. Cedric at his side. Chapter 32, flesh, blood, and bone. Their feet slam into the ground, but they're not outside the maze. They're not even at Hogwarts. They don't even see the mountains that surround the school. The cup clearly was a portkey. It's transported them to an unknown graveyard, dark, overgrown. There's a large yew tree. Yew, the wood of Voldemort's wand. Yew, a symbol of regeneration and rebirth. Harry sees the outline of an old house up on a hillside. The Riddle House, the reader is realizing. Neither Harry nor Cedric knew the cup was a porky. Neither of them know if where they are right now, if this is part of the task. They agree to take out their wands. They're starting to feel afraid. This is a powerful moment here. Both Cedric and Harry just achieved something incredible, something legendary. And instantly, the circumstances in which they find themselves cause all of that to fade away, replaced by their nerves and the threat of the unknown. They see a figure approaching, and though Harry can't see a face, he can see that the figure is holding something. As the figure draws closer from the book, Harry saw the thing in the person's arms looked like a baby. The figure stops at a headstone six feet away from them. They all look at each other, and then Harry's scar explodes with pain. From the book, it was agony such as he had never felt in all his life. He drops his wand and falls to the ground, and as he does so, he hears a high, cold voice say, Kill the spare. I'll never forget this, reading this for the first time, like shaking. I thought my heart was going to explode through my chest. There's a swish and a second voice which screeded the words to the night, Avada Kedavra. Harry, his eyes shut tight, sees a green light flash through his eyelids and hears something fall next to him. Harry vomits from pain and overcome by terror, opens his eyes from the book. Cedric was lying, spread-eagled on the ground. Beside him, he was dead. For a second that contained an eternity, Harry stayed and stared into Cedric's face at his open gray eyes, blank and expressionless, as the windows of a deserted house at his half-open mouth, which looked slightly surprised. Cedric Diggory is dead. This was the fact that it's like the high of camaraderie and shared experience, grabbing the cups, whatever you want to say about who really wanted it and like 
the ruthlessness it takes to really win. Uh, that was a touching moment for them to share that together and then for it to immediately lead to Cedric's death in a way where he doesn't even get a chance to defend himself. Can't even, he doesn't even get to even say anything. He has no idea what is happening. Uh, is shocking for Harry and it was utterly shocking as a reader. You're just like, what just happened? Wait, what? Right. I mean, it's hard to think now when you didn't know the plot, when you didn't know how this was all going to turn out, the fact that it would lead immediately there to Voldemort to death, Wormtail committing heinous murder, and then Voldemort rising. It's this whole, the end of this book is incredible, shocking. It and is. I know I've said this before, but like, I think part of the genius of it is like that it happens here, like a book and maybe a book earlier than you expect it to. The shock and horror of this moment. Remember what the centaur Ronan said in Sorcerer's Stone during Harry's first trip into the Forbidden Forest. Always the innocent are the first victims. So it has been for ages past. So it is now. Cedric, like Frank Bryce, was innocent, a bystander ripped from the world because he got in the way. His entire life, his entire beautiful existence was cut so severely short, reduced in this instant to the words despair. Who is to blame? Voldemort clearly is to blame. But I would take this moment to blame the ministry and those in power for not preparing their children for this. They were derelict in their responsibilities. All of them, not talking about Voldemort, not teaching kids about the first Wizarding War. Nobody knows about the Dark Mark. The ministry and those in power left their children defenseless, and this is what happens. This is the moment that Cedric's life ends, and it's the moment that Harry's life changes forever. There's no innocence after this, no full, true return. How could there be after seeing what evil can do? Harry will be able to see Thestrals when he arrives at school next year, because this act changes him, fundamentally alters how he thinks about life, when Voldemort kills, he rips his soul, but he rips something for his victims, too. Harry can't process what he's seeing, but he feels himself being pulled up. And the short man drags Harry to the tombstone. Harry sees the name upon it, Tom Riddle. Chilling moment for readers. Harry's bound to the headstone, and he's struggling to break free. And as he's struggling, he feels a missing finger as his captor hits him, and he realizes who it is. Wormtail. You, he gasped. Professor Trelawney's prediction. Playing out. Here it is. The servant returned. The Dark Lord set to rise. Harry can feel that Wormtail is trembling. Now, Pettigrew has no innocence left. Not after he betrayed Lily and James. Not after he framed Sirius. Not after he murdered those innocent muggles and lived as a rat for more than a decade. And yet, this moment is clearly impacting him greatly. Such is the horror of what's unfolding. It's very effective to position one of the people who's involved in this hideous ritual as being this afraid. That is how unholy what we're about to witness is. Wormtail binds and gags Harry. All he can see is what's right before him now. Cedric's dead body. The cup beyond that. His wand at Cedric's feet. The bundle Harry thought Wormtail was carrying, that he thought of as a baby, is stirring in a bundle of robes. A giant snake is slithering at his feet. Wormtail pushes a huge cauldron full of liquid to the foot of the grave. From the book, a great stone belly large enough for a full-grown man to sit it. Wormtail lights a fire beneath the cauldron and sparks begin flying off the surface. Thick steam billowing, the shape in the bundle moving agitatedly, shouting for Wormtail to hurry. From the book, Wormtail pulled open the robes on the ground, revealing what was inside of them, and Harry let out a yell that was strangled in the wad of material blocking his mouth. It's the shape of a human child, but from the book again, Harry had never seen anything less like a child. It was hairless and scaly looking. A dark, raw, reddish black. Its arms and legs were thin and feeble, 
and its face. No child alive ever had a face like that, flat and snake-like with gleaming red eyes. The creature appears to Harry almost helpless, needing Wormtail, who looked revolted as he carries it to lift it, carrying it to the cauldron and dropping it in. All Harry can do is hope that the creature drowns, that this nightmare fuel can disappear forever beneath the diamond-crusted surface of that bubbling, sparkling brew. It's as though Harry has fallen into one of his nightmares, truly. But there's no waking up from this one. Only the fear and the remnants of his innocence falling below that surface with the huddled form. Wormtail begins to speak, and his voice is shaking with fear, too. And if the, again, if the wizard who is Voldemort's servant, the wizard who's carrying out this ritual, is this afraid, what hope does Harry have? Quote, Bone of the father unknowingly given, you will renew your son. And as Wormtail shouts, the grave below Harry cracks and a trickle of dust, of bone, rises into the air and falls into the cauldron. The potion hisses, turns a vivid blue. Wormtail begins to whimper and he pulls out a long dagger from his cloak. His voice is breaking as he says, flesh of the servant, willingly given, you will revive your master. Harry realizes what's about to happen and closes his eyes as Wormtail's scream pierces the night. There's a sickening splash as Wormtail drops what we will realize is his own hand, the one with the missing finger that he chopped off so long ago into the cauldron, and the potion turns red. Harry is trapped in a, this is a horror movie. Yes. He keeps his eyes tightly closed, but he can feel Wormtail's breath on his face. But the blood of the enemy forcibly taken, you will resurrect your foe. Trapped, helpless to prevent this physical violation and the depraved terror that is playing out before him. Harry feels the dagger pierce his right arm and sees Wormtail, now Harry's opening his eyes, sees Wormtail collect his blood in a glass vial and then pour it into the cauldron. The liquid within from the book turned instantly a blinding white. Wormtail sobs with pain, cradling his bleeding stump and Harry prays to himself, it's gone wrong, it's drowned, please let it be dead. It's the only hope he has is hoping that against hope that maybe they messed up right here at the end. Maybe that, you know, that's literally all he has left from the book. But then through the mist in front of him, he saw with an icy surge of terror, the dark outline of a man tall and skeletally thin, rising slowly from inside the cauldron. Rope me, said the high, cold voice. And then the thin man stepped out of the cauldron, staring at Harry. And Harry stared back into the face that had haunted his nightmares for three years whiter than a skull with wide, livid scarlet eyes and a nose that was flat as a snake's with slits for nostrils. Lord Voldemort had risen again. Chills. Readers will never forget this moment. Neither will viewers who saw it in the film for the first time. This is when the nightmare comes to life. This is when the Dark Lord rises and innocence is lost. Everything that we and Harry thought we knew changed forever in this instant. Do you remember where you were when you read this or saw this transpire and understood fully that this was not building toward Voldemort's return or Harry thwarting that return at the very end of the final installment. Do you remember when you realized that the middle book in this series was a rebirth, not only for Voldemort, but for the story as well? That this was a pivot point and oscillating on a body regained and innocence lost on forever altering what we understood about the making of and mercilessness of evil. There is no coming back from this moment. No returning to a world where Hogsmeade weekends and Quidditch matches could blot out everything else, though. Ariel spent some time thinking about Quidditch in order. The hell that came out of that cauldron will hang over this story until it's blasted fully from it. And now a quick break to hear from our sponsors. 
Binge Mode is brought to you by Yahoo Fantasy Football. This NFL season, be your own GM. Be a winning GM. Turn this season into a fistful of epic wins by joining a Yahoo Fantasy Football League. Yahoo has spent the offseason making serious upgrades Mm. to enhance your experience. Need those serious upgrades. Upgrades like easier scoring, new trophies, and a buttery smooth app experience. Lovely. So when you come to play fantasy football on Yahoo, the wins are as epic as the season is long. But to get in on the wins, you have to get in on the season. Yahoo Fantasy is also the only app where you can manage all of your season-long and daily fantasy teams in one place. Create or join a league now at yahoo.com slash binge mode fantasy football. Binge mode is also brought to you by Sonos. The all-new Sonos Beam is the smart, compact soundbar. You can play it all. Beam will enhance all of your daily routines with incredible sound for shows, music, video games, podcasts like Binge Mode Harry Potter, audiobooks, or movie night. Enjoy crystal clear dialogue. The speech enhancement feature uses advanced technology to ensure you never miss a word when watching shows and movies. Setting up Beam is easy. Beam connects to your TV with just one cord and syncs with your existing remote. Handy! Turn your TV's sound up or down using your voice with Amazon Alexa. Or turn the microphone off altogether with the touch of a button. Also, you can use AirPlay to effortlessly stream music, videos, and games from any Apple device to your Sonos Beam. Go to Sonos.com to learn more and order your Sonos Beam to start your smart home sound system. That's Sonos, S-O-N-O-S dot com. And now back to Binge Mode. Whoa! Chapter 33, The Death Eaters. Voldemort doesn't regard Harry for very long, but begins to look at his own body. Hey, it's got that fresh new body smell. There's something unnerving about him examining his own form as if he can't even believe it, that it's, it's finally happened. His hands are, quote, like large pale spiders. And with those fingers, he explores his chest, his arms, his face, feeling the fruits of his labor, confirming with every finger stroke that his plan worked. He removes his wand from his pocket and points it at Wormtail, raising him and throwing him against the headstone, testing his body, testing his power, feeling magic coursing through him again. And he laughs. Wormtail begins to beg, my lord, you promised. And Voldemort tells him, hold out your arm. But when Wormtail presents his bleeding stump, Voldemort asks, no, 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 the other arm. Savage. (laughs) He pulls up the sleeve of Wormtail's left arm, the spot where that Karkaroff showed Snape, and Harry sees, quote, something upon the skin there, something like a vivid red tattoo, a skull with a snake protruding from its mouth, the image that had appeared in the sky at the Quidditch World Cup, the dark mark. When Voldemort examines it, he says, it is back. They will have noticed it. Some more confirmation here of how the Death Eaters would have evaded capture after his fall. The mark faded. was no longer visible. But what about during his first reign? He continues, and now we shall see, now we shall know. He presses a finger to the brand, turning it black. Harry's scar burns with pain. From the book again, how many will be brave enough to return when they feel it? And how many will be foolish enough to stay away? Man. Woo! As Voldemort paces, waiting to see which of his servants will return to him, knowing what the burn of their brand must mean, he speaks to Harry. You stand, Harry Potter, he says, upon the remains of my late father. A muggle and a fool, very like your dear mother. But they both had their uses, did they not? Your mother died to defend you as a child, and I killed my father. And see how useful he has proved himself in death. Damn. Woo! Man, she can really write Voldemort. 
He tells Harry that his father lived in the manor home on the hill and abandoned his mother, a witch from the village, when she told him what she was. We will learn much more about that doomed and magically forced affair in Half-Blood Prince. This is the father whose name Voldemort shed when he was still at school, when he set out to abandon any innocence or goodness that he maybe could have even hoped to have. He explains to Harry that his mother died giving birth, leaving him to be raised in a muggle orphanage, an orphanage again that we will visit in Prince, one of my all-time favorite chapters, and that he sought his revenge against the Riddle clan. Quote, listen to me, reliving family history. Why? I'm growing quite sentimental. (laughs) This is a chilling line. But look, Harry, my true family returns. Now, Jason and I speak often when discussing both Harry Potter and A Song of Ice and Fire alike. This idea of the family you choose. To us, to these characters that we cherish, that idea represents hope, represents the power of being able to say, these are my people. This is my family because I want them to be my family. And here, there's innocence lost as Voldemort corrupts that idea, reminding us and Harry alike that choice is not reserved for the well-intentioned. His true family is, of course, his Death Eaters, his minions, his servants. Family for Voldemort is just another construct to warp into a weapon. Wizards begin to apparate into the graveyard, summoned by Voldemort's touch. They're hooded and masked from the book. They move forward slowly, cautiously, as though they could hardly believe their eyes. They fall to their knees, kissing the hem of his robe, muttering, Master! They form a circle around him, around Tom Riddle's grave, Harry, Voldemort, and Wormtail in the middle. They leave gaps in their ranks from the book as though waiting for more people. He welcomes them. Thirteen years since last we met, yet you answer my call as though it were yesterday. We are still united under the dark mark then. Or are we? (laughs) I like in this moment imagining Voldemort with a Twitter account and just well actuallying everybody. He sniffs and says there's a stench of guilt upon the air. I ask myself, why did this band of wizards never come to the aid of their master to whom they swore eternal loyalty? His Death Eaters are silent. They must have wormed their way back into society, he says, believing him gone and broken. And then I ask myself, but how could they have believed I would not rise again? They, who knew the steps I took long ago to guard myself against mortal death, they who had seen proofs of the immensity of my power in the times when I was mightier than any wizard living? Say, Dumbledore, I dare you, motherfuckers. Anybody here (laughs) is basically what he's saying. This is, I'm thinking back. Say it. I dare you say Dumbledore right now. Thinking back to the first Goblet episode we did and your excellent point about how it's slightly harder to take Voldemort seriously yeah. when you realize how needy he he's is. He's so <laughs> needy. He's so ne- For the reader with full clarity of the entire series, it's clear that this is about Horcruxes, the objects in which Voldemort hid parts of his soul, the objects that anchored him to this world when his body was destroyed. Harry tied to the tombstone is two books away from learning what Horcruxes are and three away from realizing that, oh, I am one. But even absent that, this is a nightmare. Guarding against mortal death, destined to rise again, what hope, what innocence could survive this proclamation, this declaration of seemingly unbeatable inevitability? Perhaps, Voldemort says, they believed in an even greater force, one that could vanquish him. Perhaps they're loyal to another. Quote, that champion of commoners, of mudbloods and muggles. Albus Dumbledore, 
I dare you to say it. (laughs) They all mutter their denials naturally. They shake their heads. Quote, it is a disappointment to me, Voldemort says. I confess myself disappointed. Terrifying. One Death Eater begs for forgiveness and Voldemort responds with the Cruciatus curse. Remember what Dumbledore said to Harry after Quirrell's death in Sorcerer's Stone. And to be clear, we mean Quirrell's book death, which was the result of Voldemort abandoning his body and not Quirrell's movie death when Harry murdered him. (laughs) Key difference. (laughs) Remember the book when Dumbledore said about Voldemort. Quote, he shows just as little mercy to his followers as his enemies. We have seen this in Voldemort's interactions with Wormtail. And we're seeing it again here. And it is petrifying. If this is what Voldemort does to his supporters, what will he do to his enemies? It's a bone-chilling question for Harry and readers to contemplate. Harry is so desperate at this point that he's just like, man, I hope somebody hears this screaming and calls the cops. Literally anyone. Yeah. The muggles. The police. (laughs) The please men. As if if that would really do anything. Anyone, he thinks, anything. Voldemort tells the Death Eaters, uh, the Death Eater he was crucioing, Avery, to rise. You ask forgiveness? I do not forgive. I do not forget. 13 long years. That's what we say to Isaac after every bad edit, you know? I want 13 years repayment (laughs) before I forgive you. And he mentions that Wormtail has already repaid some. I love that some. He (laughs) says some. Yeah. Wormtail (gasps) sought him out. Milk the guinea when he was got a Bertha. Got Bertha when he was a fucking nub. Helped him become cut a nub. his goddamn arm off. Mm-hmm. And and Voldemort's like, ah, well, hold on, we're not done. What, what interest rate did we discuss? <laughs> Some is brutal. He says, "You return to me not out of loyalty, but out of fear of your old friends. You deserve this pain, Wormtail. You know that, don't you?" Man, in Half Blood Prince, Dumbledore will describe Voldemort's soul mutilation uh, to create the Horcrux as beyond the realms of what we might call usual evil. And it's hard not to think of that description here and apply it to Voldemort's actions. Full stop. He continues, "Yet you helped return me to my body, worthless and traitorous <laughs> as you are. You helped me." And Lord Voldemort rewards his helpers, and he raises his wand and conjures a silver hand for Wormtail, a hand which Wormtail crushes a twig into powder. Wormtail thanks him. May your loyalty never waver again, Wormtail. And Wormtail says, no, my lord, never, never my lord. More on that in the seven. Voldemort begins to move around the circle, and he's addressing his servants. First up, Lucius Malfoy. This is ice in the stomach. Yeah. For Harry and the reader alike. Harry has always hated Draco and the Malfoy clan. Always believed, truly believed, that they are vile, bigoted people. He even suspected Lucius's involvement at the Quidditch World Cup, which Voldemort will confirm here. But there is no substitute for confirmation, for proof, for definitively knowing that Lucius Malfoy is a Death Eater. Whenever Harry looks into Draco's eyes in the future— Harry's going to remember this, that Draco's father stood here in this graveyard watching Harry fight for his life. Harry has spoken to Lucius Malfoy. He has seen him in his school at the World Cup in Diagon Alley. Voldemort has always been a larger-than-life monster in Harry's mind. Lucius? Vile, yes. Behind the diary plot, yes. But also a person who's just out in the world, around his friends and classmates, around Dobby. And now Harry realizes that a person he has stood next to in a 
bookshop is truly a part of all of this, fully involved in these horrors. There's no coming back from having those scales fully fall off your eyes. Lucius says that he was always on the lookout for signs, but Voldemort is ready for this. Why then did he run when a faithful Death Eater sent the dark mark into the sky? Tough luck for my guy, Lucius. (laughs) Voldemort continues, remarking upon the empty space where the strangers should be. Uh They were faithful. They went to Azkaban rather than renounce me. When Azkaban is broke open, the Lestranges will be honored beyond their dreams. Bella will <laughs> get to milk a snake of a certain <laughs> certain other species. Voldemort notes that he will recruit the Dementors and the Giants, an army of creatures whom all fear, and he passes some Death Eaters in silence. He addresses McNair, uh-huh. the executioner who was tasked with killing Buckbeak, a ministry employee in Voldemort's inner circle. <laughs> Brutal. He won't be the only one. He reaches <laughs> Crab and Goyle and not all fathers of Harry's classmates. The horror. He reaches the largest gap of all. And here we have six missing Death Eaters, three dead in my service, one too cowardly to return. He will pay. One who I believe has left me forever. He will be killed, of course. And one who remains my most faithful servant and who has already re-entered my service. We'll learn in time that too cowardly to return means Karkaroff. Left him forever means Snape, though. Voldemort will accept him back into his service and his most faithful servant, Barty. The final twist still to come. When Voldemort says that his most faithful servant is at Hogwarts, we and Harry have to wonder in this moment, experiencing this for the first time, if he's talking about Snape. Voldemort then draws the group's attention to Harry at last. Harry Potter has kindly joined us for my rebirthing party. One might go so far as to call him my guest of honor. He begins to tell the story of his downfall and revival. Must be said. Voldemort loves to stunt. You know, of course, that they have called this boy my downfall, he says, reminding them quite unnecessarily that on the night he lost his power in his body, he tried to kill Harry. What went wrong? Well, glad you asked. Quote, his mother died in the attempt to save him and unwittingly provided him with a protection I admit I had not foreseen. I could not touch the boy. His mother left upon him the traces of her sacrifice. This is old magic. I should have remembered it. I was foolish to overlook it. But no matter, I can touch him now. Voldemort's fingertip touches Harry's cheek and pain courses through Harry's head. Voldemort goes on about how he miscalculated, how Lily's sacrifice deflected his curse, which rebounded upon him. He speaks as though the oversight is actually something from which he's now drawing strength. If Harry had actually been superior to him. That would be a real worry. But this, this was an accident. Hearing Voldemort reposition the worst defeat of his life, the thing that has completely defined Harry's life as little more than a lucky break for his foe, that could rob the world of all remaining innocence, of all remaining hope of ever truly thwarting him. Ultimately, it will be just the opposite. Here, as before, as again in the future, Voldemort is displaying this crippling hubris that will undo him. His deeply held sincere belief that he is not just mighty, but superior to all. This arrogance blinds him. This arrogance will be his downfall. Voldemort goes on, recounting the pain of being torn from his body. I was less than spirit, less than the meanest ghost. But still, I was alive. And he issues a huge Horcrux clue here. Speaking lines that when Harry tells them to Dumbledore later will 
really helped Dumbledore uh, put together what Voldemort has done. Yes. What I was, even I do not know. I, who have gone further than anybody along the path that leads to immortality. You know, Michael, to conquer death. That further than anybody line is particularly key in Dumbledore's realizing that Voldemort made not just one Horcrux, but multiple, again, right. gone beyond the realms of what we might call usual evil. Voldemort recalls waiting in vain for one of his supporters to find him. How he remained hidden to avoid the horrors. He knew we're still looking at him. And honestly, this is one of the first times where we're like, oh, they were looking for you. The ministry was out there yeah. doing something great to know. How he possessed animals, but was ultimately stymied by his lack of a wand and a body. How four years ago, Quirrell wandered across his path. Quote, he was easy to bend to my will. That line, that one line tells you so much about how he operates. Goes on about how he was thwarted. Quote, thwarted once again by Harry Potter. How he faced his darkest hour after that, returning to his hiding place, wondering if he would ever return to his body. How when he'd almost abandoned hope, Wormtail returned to him. How Wormtail ran into Bertha Jorkins at an inn. How the woman who could have ruined all unlocked it instead. Quote, now see the way that fate favors Lord Voldemort. He says chillingly, full of belief and conviction that he will win, that he's meant to win. He really believes this. Bertha, quote, proved instead to be a gift beyond my wildest dreams. She told Voldemort about the Triwizard Tournament and of a faithful Death Eater who would do anything to help Voldemort return to power. Barty Jr., we will learn in the next set of chapters. How her mind and her body were damaged beyond repair when he finished extracting information from her. Again, for Harry and us, innocence is lost here. When he's talking about Bertha, he is talking about a person, a life discarded as a thing, just a means to an end for him, a source of information worth nothing more. Quote, I disposed of her. He's talking about her like she's garbage. He explains that Wormtail, at his instructions, returned him to a temporary body using unicorn blood and Nagini venom. Mmm, delicious. Knowing that Dumbledore would have destroyed the stone he set out for returning to his old body. Quote, my old strength. Using an old piece of dark magic that required the three powerful ingredients that he got tonight. Well, one of them was already at hand. <laughs> Homie's got jokes. <laughs> he explains that Wormtail wanted him to use any foe. <laughs> Bringing that up again. But that he wanted Harry's blood. I wanted the blood of the one who had stripped me of power. 13 years ago for the lingering protection his mother once gave him would then reside in my veins too. He then says that Harry has been better protected than even he knows. Quote, protected in ways devised by Dumbledore long ago when it fell to him to arrange the boy's future. Dumbledore invoked an ancient magic to ensure the boy's protection as long as he is in his relations care. Not even I can touch him there. The Dursleys, Petunia, Lily's blood. He couldn't take him at the cup either because there were just so many ministry wizards around. But the tournament, that was the key. He used his faithful Death Eater to enter Harry into the tournament to ensure that he won and touched the cup which had been turned into a portkey. And here he is, the boy you all believed had been my downfall. <sighs> he hits Harry with the Cruciatus curse. Quote, it was pain beyond anything Harry had ever experienced. Harry wants to die. And then, just as quickly, the pain abates and the night rings with the Death Eater's laughter. Quote, you see, I think how foolish it was to suppose that this boy could ever have been stronger than me. But I want there to be no mistake in anybody's mind. 
Harry Potter escaped me by a lucky chance, and I am now going to prove my power by killing him, here and now, in front of you all, when there is no Dumbledore to help him and no mother to die for him. I'm about to cry. <laughs> I can't believe I made it this far, honestly. I will give him his chance. He will be allowed to fight, and you will be left in no doubt which of us is the stronger. Just a little longer, Nagini, he whispered, and the snake glided away through the grass to where the Death Eaters stood watching. Now untie him, Wormtail, and give him back his wand. And that is how the chapter ends. Heart pounding as a reader, chills racing down your spine. You cannot help but wonder in this moment if Voldemort is right. That is part of the horror of it. Maybe Harry really was just lucky. You have to at least think that for a second. It's innocence lost for us. It's the moment where we doubt, where we allow ourselves to believe, even if just for an instant, that maybe evil really will win in the end. Chapter 34, Priory Incantatum. Wormtail iconic fr- chapter. Wormtail frees Harry and hands him his wand. Voldemort asks Harry if he's been taught how to duel. He's taunting him, but Harry flashes back to the dueling club at Hogwarts in his second year when he first realized that his ability to talk to snakes linked him to Slytherin, and he had questioned his place in Gryffindor, questioned who he was. What had Harry learned? You know, just Expelliarmus, a spell, remember, that he learned from Snape. But what use would it be to deprive Voldemort of his wand, Harry wonders, when all his Death Eaters are there? This is doubt and fear that Harry will actually repair in time. When others raise this very question in a uh, Dumbledore's army meeting, and he can say with confidence and certainty, this works. This saved my life. Take that, Zacharias Smith, you piece of garbage. now. He knows only fear from the book. He had never learned anything that could possibly fit him for this. He knew he was facing the thing against which Moody had always warned, the unblockable Avada Kedavra curse. And Voldemort was right. His mother was not here to die for him this time. He was quite unprotected. The idea of protection is inextricable from innocence. We believe when we're young that others will guide us, that they'll shelter us. One of the series' most agonizing moments And one of the most defining steps on Harry's hero's journey hinges on him casting aside the notion that he can even be saved anymore. We return to this line from Prince so often because it's significant. Quote, there was no waking from his nightmare, no comforting whisper in the dark that he was safe, really. That it was all in his imagination. The last and greatest of his protectors had died, and he was more alone than he had ever been before. Here in the graveyard, Harry begins his journey toward casting aside what he'll come to think of as this illusion of protection. Voldemort's chilling taunt continues. We bow to each other, Harry, said Voldemort, bending a little but keeping his snake-like face upturned to Harry. Come, the niceties must be observed. Dumbledore would like you to show manners. Bow to death, Harry. He's treating Harry like a child, like a plaything, like a toy. And Harry refuses to bow, refuses to give in. Voldemort can kill him, but Harry's not going to let him shame him. He's too grown up now, too aware of the games that people play. Voldemort won't bend either. He issues the command again, and Harry feels his spine curve. Quote, and now you face me like a man, straight-backed and proud the way your father died. And now we duel. His father, James, one of the two deaths that robbed Harry of his innocence before he could even speak. Part of Voldemort's taunt, but also inspiration. Another miscalculation here for Voldemort, giving Harry courage and strength by mentioning his father. Voldemort hits Harry again with the Cruciatus curse, and Harry screams and shakes, and the Death Eaters laugh. And Voldemort continues to speak to him like a child. That hurt, didn't it, Harry? You don't want me to do that again, do you? But Voldemort prevented Harry 
from ever really being a child. He set him on the path to becoming the man before him now. Shaking with terror, yes, but still standing tall. Quote, (laughs) this is really emotional. I just love this book so much. Ah! He was going to die like Cedric. Those pitiless red eyes were telling him so. He was going to die and there was nothing he could do about it. But he wasn't going to play along. He wasn't going to obey Voldemort. He wasn't going to beg. Voldemort tries to force Harry to answer using the Imperious Curse. But Harry does not yield. Remember, Bardai taught Harry to resist this curse. Taught him to resist his master. The irony is as thick as the air in the graveyard. And Harry shouts, I won't. This surprises Voldemort. You won't? said Voldemort quietly, and the Death Eaters were not laughing. Now, you won't say no? Harry, obedience is a virtue I need to teach you before you die. Harry gains strength now from his own resistance, rolls behind a headstone for shelter. Voldemort tells him they're not playing hide-and-seek. This is chilling contrast, mentioning a child's game as the last vestiges of Harry's innocence are blasted away. Come out, Harry, come out and play then. It will be quick. It might even be painless. I would not know. I have never died. Harry crouches and considers his fate. There's no help, no hope from the book. He knew one thing only, and it was beyond fear or reason. He was not going to die crouching here like a child playing hide-and-seek. He was not going to die kneeling at Voldemort's feet. He was going to die upright like his father, and he was going to die trying to defend himself, even if no defense was possible. And he throws himself around a headstone as Voldemort shouts the killing curse. Harry turns to the only thing he knows. Expelliarmus! Just as Voldemort shouts the killing curse, the jets of light meet in midair, red against green, the colors of their eyes. Man, Harry turning to greet death in this way, and then you think about his walk into the forest, just unbelievable. As the spells meet, Harry's wand begins to vibrate. Quote, he couldn't have released it if he'd wanted to. This is new magic for us and for Harry. A narrow golden beam replaces the green and the red, connecting the wands. Astonished, Harry and Voldemort are lifted into the air, and they land in a new patch of grass. And as they do, the light beam splinters and arches all around them, forming a dome. And the Death Eaters are panicking. That line earlier about the Death Eaters not laughing after Harry resisted the Imperious Curse, none of them can resist it. And this boy is resisting this. Now what's happening? They have never seen anything like this. Do nothing, Voldemort shrieked to the Death Eaters. And Harry saw his red eyes wide with astonishment at what was happening. From the book, do nothing, Voldemort shrieked to the Death Eaters, and Harry saw his red eyes wide with astonishment at what was happening. Then, Phoenix Song emerges from the beams of light. Quote, it was the sound of hope to Harry, the most beautiful and welcome thing he had ever heard in his life. He felt as though the song were inside him instead of just around him. It was the sound he connected with Dumbledore, and it was almost as though a friend were speaking in his ear. Don't break the connection. Innocence lost, this moment tells us, does not have to mean hope lost. Sometimes we need to. We can. Hope more than ever after we've been forced to put our illusions aside. We will learn much more from Dumbledore in the closing chapters about the nature of this magic, about the history and the power of the twin cores that Harry and Voldemort's wands share, about the violation at play when brother wands duel. The layers there are myriad, as is the symbolism given what we'll ultimately learn about Harry's core, the piece of Voldemort's soul that resides within him. Here, in the heat of these pages, we don't think about the why or the how. We think simply of the what. Phoenix Song, Fox, Dumbledore, 
the possibility of triumph. Beads of light appear on the central beam, and Harry concentrates with full force of mind and will on moving them toward Voldemort's wand. Quote, and it was Voldemort's wand that was vibrating extra hard now. Voldemort, who looked astonished and almost fearful. The beads connect with Voldemort's wand, and shrieks of pain fill the air. Priory and Cantatum, here it is. We saw this with Amos and Harry's wand and Winky after the Quidditch World mm-hmm. Cup, the reverse spell effect. A smoky hand emerges. The shadows of Voldemort's spells are spilling out of his wand, and Voldemort's eyes are wide with shock. Soon, Cedric's shadow emerges, dense, and it speaks to Harry, telling him to hold on. Then Frank emerges. You fight him, boy. Bertha next. Don't let go. Quote, Voldemort's dead victims whispered as they circled the duelers, whispered words of encouragement to Harry and hissed words Harry couldn't hear to Voldemort. And then a woman emerges. And Harry knows who it's going to be the second he sees her start to come out. Quote, because the woman appearing was the one he'd thought of more than any other tonight. It's his mother, Lily. Hold on for your father. And James Potter emerges, telling Harry to get to the cup, which will take him back to Hogwarts. Quote, when the connection is broken, we will linger for only moments, but we will give you time. Harry lost his parents and his innocence so long ago, but here they are protecting him still, just like they will be with him as he walks into the forest and turns the resurrection stone in Deathly Hallows, protecting him still. This is the real power of magic. This is the power of boundless love, the kind of love that stretches beyond life and death. And Cedric speaks, take my body back, will you? Take my body back to my parents. And Harry breaks the connection at last, and the shadows of Voldemort's victims close in on him and block Harry from view. And he runs, runs like he's never run in his life, dodging curses, blind to the pain in his leg. And Voldemort shouts for his Death Eaters to stun Harry. Harry reaches out for Cedric as he hears Voldemort shriek, stand aside, I will kill him, he is mine. Harry grabs Cedric's wrist and sees Voldemort's mouth curl into a spile. Accio! Harry shouts, pointing his wand at the cup. Shoots into the air. He catches the handle. Quote, He heard Voldemort's scream of fury at the same moment that he felt the jerk behind his navel that meant the portkey had worked. It was speeding him away in a whirl of wind and color, and Cedric along with him. They were going back. But what is Harry going back to? Innocence lost. Voldemort returned. His life will never be the same. Jason? Yes? You answer my call as though it were yesterday. We are still united under the binge mode mark then. Or are we? To answer that question, please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about the Death Eaters. The Death Eaters. They are Voldemort's most fanatical followers, powerful and power-hungry dark wizards and witches willing to do anything, no matter how heinous, to ingratiate themselves to their lord. They will use torture. They will manipulate. They will murder without remorse to further their leader's vision of pure-blooded racial supremacy in which Muggleborns are second-class citizens and Muggles themselves are as if insects, totally insignificant. We don't know when exactly the Death Eaters were founded as an organization, but we know the group grew out of the cadre of admirers that 
the handsome and talented young wizard Tom Riddle gathered around himself during his time as a student at Hogwarts. Dumbledore says in Half-Blood Prince, this group had a kind of dark glamour within the castle. They were a motley connection, a mixture of the weak seeking protection, the ambitious seeking some shared glory, and the thuggish gravitating toward a leader who could show them more refined forms of cruelty. And I think that description holds true uh, today when we talk about the current Death Eater lineup, which we'll get to in a second. The group for a time was called the Knights of Walpurgis. This is a reference to Walpurgis Nacht. Amazing. Or the Feast of Walpurgis, the night of April 30th. On this night, legend has it that witches met on the Brocken, the highest peak in the Harz Mountains in northern Germany. And Dracula's guest, Bram Stoker, wrote, quote, Walpurgis Night, when, according to the belief of millions of people, the devil was abroad, when the graves were opened and the dead came forth and walked, when all evil things of earth and air and water held Revel. The day is named for St. Walsperga, an 8th century English-born nun and missionary who worked to convert the pagan peoples of Francia, uh, the Germanic kingdom which preceded modern-day France, Germany, Belgium, some of the low countries. Her success as an evangelist for Christianity earned her a reputation as a warrior in the battle against witchcraft, and she was canonized by Pope Adrian II in 870. Also, we should note that Sirius Black's mother is Walburga. Black. Love that portrait. Yeah. The day has deep roots in pagan belief as well, which makes sense. When you're converting a populace to a new religion, early missionaries, of course, would have found it useful to co-opt existing uh, days of note rather than to simply erase them. April 30th corresponds to the ancient Celtic festival of Beltane, which marked the beginning of summer. April 30th falls exactly six months after Samhain, the traditional beginning of winter, which became our modern Halloween. It was believed that uh, on those days, the barrier between life and death was the thinnest it would be all year. Notable current and former Death Eaters include Severus Snape, who switched sides and turned spy for Dumbledore when Voldemort targeted Lily, Peter Pettigrew, schoolboy friend of James Potter, Sirius Black and Remus Lupin, and a co-creator of the Marauder's Map. He betrayed the Potters to Voldemort. Bellatrix Lestrange, knee black, cousin of Sirius Black, sister to Narcissa Malfoy, and the mother of Voldemort's child. She loved that snake. Her <laughs> husband, Rudy Lestrange, and his brother, Rabastan. Regulus Black, Sirius's brother, who rebelled after s- discovering the Horcrux plot. Yes. Draco and Lucius Malfoy. Goyle and Crabbe seniors, fathers of Draco's lackeys, Buckbeak's nearly executioner, Walden McNair, Antonin Dolohoff, who murdered Molly Weasley's brothers, Fabian and Gideon, during the first Wizarding War, Igor Karkaroff, the headmaster of Durmstrang, and Barty Crouch Jr., the talented young son of the head of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement. The infamous werewolf Fenrir Greyback runs with them. He is a Death Eater adjacent, but does not carry the mark as he is not a pure blood wizard. During the first Wizarding War, the Death Eaters held the world in an iron grip of fear. They infiltrated the Ministry and murdered Muggle-born wizards and witches at will. Muggles were their playthings to kill and torture as they pleased. Nowhere was safe. After the fall of Voldemort, though, they scattered like cockroaches in the light. The Ministry's muscular policies under Barty Crouch Sr. took their toll as well. And many were placed in Azkaban with or without trial, or like Evan Rozier, died rather than be captured. Without their leader to protect them, the Death Eaters turned on each other, snitching in return for freedom, as Igor Karkaroff did. Or explaining that their actions, uh, you know, it's the Imperious Curse, man. It's 
so tough to fight that thing, as Lucius Malfoy did. When Barty Crouch conjured the dark mark at the Quidditch World Cup, he did so not to announce the return of a resurgent Death Eater group, but to shame and terrify those members who, in his view, were not sufficiently loyal, not sufficiently fanatical. The Death Eaters follow Voldemort because they see him as a conduit to power for themselves or, like Fenrir, because his crusade of murder allows them to satisfy their own dark urges. But their master can never be pleased and his hunger for cruelty can never be sated. After his return to full form, he chastises his followers for their lack of faith. Perhaps they now pay allegiance to another, perhaps the champion of commoners, of mudbloods and muggles, Albus Dumbledore. It is a disappointment to me. I confess myself disappointed. When one of his Death Eaters falls to his knees and begs forgiveness, Voldemort crucios him as Wormtail, bleeding from the stump that used to be his arm, looks on. Is this your king? Jason. Yes. Listen to me. Reliving family history. Why I am growing quite sentimental. But look, Jason. Yeah. My true family returns. <laughs> Nuggets. Wow, I got to chill just now. <laughs> So let's split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Goblet chapters 31 through 34, in addition to the myriad we've already listed, (laughs) because seven (laughs) remains the most powerfully magical number. I'll go first. Number one, Voldemort says, may your loyalty never waver again, Wormtail. Well, at the end of Prisoner (laughs) of Azkaban, Dumbledore told Harry, who was full of regret for letting Pettigrew escape, that in saving Pettigrew's life, Harry had created a bond between them. Old magic that would put Pettigrew in Harry's debt. In Deathly Hallows, when that loyalty does briefly waver, as Harry reminds Wormtail of the life debt he owes him, the silver hand that Voldemort gave Wormtail here will turn upon its owner, strangling him to death. Speaking of Wormtail, For quite some time, many readers wondered how Voldemort got his wand back, his original wand. Since lacking a body, he could not have taken it with him when his vapor form fled from Godric's Hollow after murdering Lillian James and failing to murder Harry. J.K.R., always willing to engage in a dialogue with the readers, provided an answer in a 2007 chat. Wormtail, desperate to curry favor, Fetched it from the wreckage. Quote from JK here. I admit that would have been a bit of a feat for a rat, but they are highly intelligent creatures. Number two. When Mrs. Weasley and Bill greet Harry (laughs) ahead of the final task, Bill asks if the fat lady is still there. The following astonishing exchange ensues. She was here in my time, said Mrs. Weasley. She gave me such a telling off one night when I got back to the dormitory at four in the morning. What were you doing out of your dormitory at four in the morning, said Bill. Surveying his mother with amazement, Mrs. Weasley grinned, her eyes twinkling. Your father and I had been for a nighttime (laughs) stroll. Indeed. He got caught by Apollyon Pringle. He was the caretaker in those days. Your father still got the marks. (laughs) And also, Apollyon Pringle chastised him. (laughs) (laughs) Number three. Speaking of Bill Weasley, earlier in the book, Harry observes... Quote, Bill was, there was no other word for it. Cool. We would like to suggest an edit here. How about Bill was, there was no other word for it. Hot. Harry notices when Bill is in this chamber that Violet, the fat lady's friend, is winking at Bill from her portrait. (laughs) And then there's this gem. Quote, Fleur Delacour, Harry noticed, was eyeing Bill with 
great interest over her mother's shoulder. Hello. Harry can tell she had- Is that dragon leather? (laughs) Hold on. No objection whatsoever to long hair or earrings with fangs on them. Flora is supposed to be the most beautiful woman that any of these people have ever seen. And she's looking at Bill like a- Hello. Velvety, savory pot of bouillabaisse that she can't wait to dig into. Bill is a stud. On a more serious note, this moment- Yes. There's too many boys around here. There's finally is a man. (laughs) This moment with Flora foreshadows her eventual union with Bill, a pairing that initially causes some tension among the Weasleys, but- that ultimately serves as one of the most stirring and rallying portraits of love and acceptance in the entire series. When Bill is mauled by Fenrir, Floor, despite Mrs. Weasley's concerns that she might only be with Bill for his looks, does not run. She stands by her man unwaveringly, winning the undying love of Mrs. Weasley and readers everywhere in the process. Number four. There's actually a mistake in the initial version of the prior Incantatum chapter. Harry's dad comes out of the wand first before his mom, even though it's in reverse order of death, so Lily should come out first. This has been corrected in subsequent editions. Before this mistake was corrected, though, the order of their appearance sparked a slew of internet theorizing. Read up the wand order problem at your leisure for a little pensive trip of your own into the memory of fandom. I love sci-fi and fantasy fans are the best. Keep you on your toes. So good. Number five. Harry masters quite a few spells ahead of the third task, but the one that the text makes a point of noting he is struggling to master is Protego. This is all the more amazing to think about because that shield charm is what Harry will shout in the moment when he pulls off the invisibility cloak and reveals himself alive at the end of Deathly Hallows. Number six, Voldemort's Bow to death, Harry line is petrifying in the moment, but in the full context of the story, it takes on much more meaning. Recall that the tale of the three brothers concludes with the third Peverell brother bowing to death in a very different fashion. Quote, and then he greeted death as an old friend and went with him gladly. And equals, they departed this life. Love that. Number seven, lastly, earlier we mentioned Voldemort's saying of death. It will be quick. It might even be painless. He means this as a taunt. But in Deathly Hallows, in the forest again, all-time favorite chapter, Harry hears something similar, though from as different a source and in as different a way as possible. Mm -hmm. When Harry, willingly walking to his own demise, asks if dying hurts, Sirius, who is there by the power of the resurrection stone, says, dying? Not at all quicker and easier than falling asleep. Mal? Yeah? It is a disappointment to me. I confess myself disappointed. But when the Dark Lord wins, he wins, and what are you going to do? Nothing to be done. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or creature that really compelled us the most. And who was more compelling than the guy we're about to give out last-minute points and award the House Cup to? Dark Lord, Harry's good friend, Tom Riddle, <laughs> Lord Voldemort. I mean, listen, here's the contrarian take. We'll give that first. He meant to kill Harry. He monologued a little too much, flossed, that was like, I'll untie this guy, watch this. And now Harry's back in the world running around trying to tell people that Voldemort's back. Yeah. Okay, that didn't good. work. <laughs> the, uh, the other side of that is obvious. He's back. He's got yes. a body. He's got his death ears around him. He's... Return to full power after years as a little 
disgusting ball of snot. He's back. The guy is back and his plot, his extremely meticulous plot worked. Also, a pretty decent number of Death Eaters returned, considering the amount of time that had passed and them not really knowing what awaited them. Like, he has instantly an army at his disposal again. And this is a small thing, but you know it's meaningful to him. Using his father's bone like that, getting still more revenge even long after death against his father. Big deal for young Tom. Always back up your soul. They always, you know, don't make that mistake. Put it on the cloud. Put it on the cloud. And as many different horcruxes as you can. You got to back that thing up. <laughs> well, friends, may your loyalty never waver again. That's what we said to Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our <laughs> indispensable producer and researcher. But they both went on vacation anyway. How dare they? So in their stead, a huge thanks to Bobby Wagner and Evan Campbell. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you were as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you will join us again tomorrow. We will be discussing chapters 35 through 37 of Goblet of Fire, the stunning conclusion of this sacred text. Until then, remember, flesh of the servant, willingly given, you will revive binge mode! And yet you ran from my mark when a faithful Death Eater sent it into the sky last summer. You have disappointed me. I expected more faithful service. I expect more faithful service in the future from you. Zach Cram and Isaac should stand here, but they are on vacation. They say they were faithful. But where were they when their dark lords needed them? When we called binge mode together, where were they? When we were in the forests of Albania drinking snake milk, where were they? We will repay them in time. Today's episode of Binge Mode was brought to you by Sonos. The all-new Sonos Beam is the smart, compact sound bar. You can play it all. Beam will enhance all your daily routines with incredible sound for shows, music, video games, all of your ringer podcasts audiobooks, or movie night. Setting up Beam is easy. Beam connects to your TV with just one cord and syncs with your existing remote. Go to Sonos.com to learn more and order your Sonos Beam to start your smart home sound system. That's Sonos, S-O-N-O-S.com. 